You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. The problem with grumbling is when we linger again in those thoughts, when we dwell in that in that in that mindset, and our and our hearts become resentful and they grow bitter, cold, and hardened towards. God in our circumstances. That's what we want to deal with. That's what we want to prevent. And we see example of this kind of nature, of this kind of inclination in the story of the Israelites all throughout Scripture. The story of the Israelites from wandering in the wilderness to the rise and fall of their kings and kingdoms is a great example, is great examples for us to learn from. The pitfalls to avoid, mentalities to, to, to maneuver around. Said, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we must, we must not put Christ to test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And he says about the stories of the Israelites, he says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul says that the story of the Old Testament, the reason why the Israelites went through all those hardships is so that we can learn what to avoid, so that we can learn from their pitfalls. Now notice what Paul brings up in that, that middle of that passage. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9 to 12. He says, we are not to grumble as the Israelites did in the wilderness. It's interesting that Paul lumps grumbling with idolatry. He lumps grumbling with putting God to the test. Because again, grumbling is a prelude to rebellion. It's a precursor to disobedience. It is, again, the vocalization of our doubts towards the will and purposes of God. Grumbling was ultimately at, at the root of Israelites' problems in the wilderness, if you know their story. There is no water in the desert. They grumbled, grumbled, grumbled. There was no food in the desert. They grumbled some more. There was no meat. They grumbled some more. At each turn, no matter how much God provided for them, showed up, showed his glory to them, they continued to grumble. And we saw the result of their grumbling. Moses took too long up in the mountains, and, and the people grumbled. And as a result, they rebelled and made a golden calf. The worst example of the people's grumbling in, in the Old Testament is a story, is a story that sort of became the, the boogeyman story for the Israelites, the, the what, what parents would tell to their kids to warn them of grumbling. It's, it's an all-time worst example of grumbling, and that is a story in Numbers 16, Korah's Rebellion. This instance in Hebrew history, in Israelites' timeline in the wilderness, to the Orthodox Jews was the worst case of grumbling because it got to a point where God, had, where God had to unleash his wrath onto the people. And hundreds of people died. The story was so feared and burned into the minds of first century Jews that even New Testament writers, being Jews themselves, referenced it as well whenever they dealt with, with grumbling within the church. Jesus alludes to it in John chapter 6. James talks about it in, in his book, in, John, in James chapter 5. Jude, Jude calls Korah by name in his letter. 
Paul makes reference to it in 1 Corinthians as well as he alludes to it in Philippians, in our Philippians passage. Look at our main passage again with me, verse 14, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That phrasing, twisted generation, a crooked and twisted generation, coupled with grumbling, alludes, it references to Moses' generation. Moses' generation in the wilderness that had to be divided between those who grumbled and those who were faithful. All this to illustrate that grumbling is bad. And that, again, that it's, it's signs of, of a faithless, of a resentful, of a hardened heart. But also because, also because in the context of the church, where if grumbling is found in the church, it's a prelude to division. Whenever grumbling is mentioned in the New Testament, it's in the context of grumbling against one another. The writers are speaking to the local church. Because the fear is that if, if, if we continue grumbling, then what would happen to Korah and his rebellion would happen in the church. And listen, I've been part of many split churches and congregations to know that it starts with grumbling. It starts when people begin to resent one another in hardened hearts. And, but instead of reconciling with one another, people rather grumble and, and criticize and escalate to a rebellion or a disobedience or a discord or a criticism of church and ministry. Now, granted, there is a place for criticism in the church, especially when sin is involved. We are called to call out or to edify those who are, who are sinning in the church. And we must, we must address and rebuke sin in the church. But even that, though, is done in a spirit of love. It's not done in, in bitterness or hardened hearts, like grumbling. And hence why grumbling must be rooted out, it must be dealt with, it must be prevented before it comes to bear fruit. So our hope for our sermon this morning is to understand where grumbling comes from. As to catch it before it escalates to disobedience, before it escalates to rebellion, before it escalates to us hardening our hearts, but also so that we would see from the Word of God the countermeasures, the remedies for when we start to grumble. Remedies that will even prevent us from starting to have that, that mindset. And my hope for us this morning, as, as a church, as a community, even individually, because again, this is something God is working in my own life, is that we learn how to better deal with, with our frustrating, frustrating circumstances, the difficult situations that we find in ourselves in so that we do not result we don't, we, don't, we don't resort to, rather, bitterness and resentful hearts, so that we don't resort to grumbling. Now, before we unpack our passage this morning, let's answer the question, why do we grumble? We've already alluded to a little bit of it this morning, but let's answer the question, why do we grumble? And I think the reason, and, and reasons for why we grumble, a, a great illustration of that is, again, the story of Korah and the, the Israelites in the, in the wilderness. It's very informative, not just of the effects or the results of grumbling, but 
really tells us what's, what's happening in our hearts when, when we are grumbling, what's happening in our hearts when we are in this mindset. So let's quickly look at it. Turn to number 16 with me. Numbers chapter 16 with me. So we can better understand what triggers us in, in our grumbling. Keep a finger in Philippians. We'll be back there uh, shortly after. So just a little bit of context for Numbers 16. Moses and the Israelites had actually just made it to the promised land. Back in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, if you know the story, Moses sends out 12 spies to look at the, to scope out the land and Ten of the spies come back with a bad report, and there's Joshua and Caleb come back with a good report saying that we can take this land, but everyone else is saying, no, we can't. There's giants. So after this bad report, the Israelites end up going back into the wilderness. They can't take the land because they're all afraid, so they end up going back into the wilderness. And so by the time number 16 comes along, there's a man named Korah who is a Levite, and he stirs up a rebellion against, against Moses and Aaron. And we get the reasons as to why. Look at Numbers chapter 16, uh, verse 1 to 3. Now Korah, the son of Israel, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abraham, the sons of Iliab, and on the, and on, on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, Chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So here's the first reason why they were grumbling, because they, did, they felt that they deserved a better position. They wanted to take Moses' position as leaders of the Israelites. Korah is saying, everyone is holy. What makes you so special? How come you're the leader of the Israelites? Korah was frustrated with, with his position and wanted more power. He wanted to be the leader. Now, in addition to that, look at, jump down to verse 8, verse 8 and 11 with me. This is when Moses addresses Korah. He says, Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near him and all your brothers and sons of Levi with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? This is interesting because Moses is Moses is bringing their memory back to the fact that God had chosen the tribe of Levi to be ministers of God, to be, the, to be the priests of God. He's saying, is it too small a thing that God has chosen you to be ministers, to be the ones that stand in the gap in, in behalf of the people of Israel? Only those of the tribe of Levi could be ministers, could be, be the, the ministers, the priests of the tabernacle. See, these people were grumbling because they took for granted their calling. They took for granted the goodness of God, the goodness that God had showed them. Moses even says, is it too small for you that God is bringing you near to himself? He took for granted that great privilege that only the Levites had. 
Remember, in the Old Testament, only the priests could come approach the presence of God. And they were given this great privilege to be those people. Korah and these people who were rebelling. Is it too small a thing to bring that God is bringing you near to himself? So Korah and the Levites are rebelling now. Moses calls for, for backup. He's calling upon these leaders from the tribe of Reuben to help and support him. But then the, the leaders of, of Reuben are also grumbling. It says in Numbers chapter 16, verse 13 to 14, this is the response of the leaders of, 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 from the tribe of Reuben. It is a small thing that you... Sorry, let's go back to verse 12. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Ibram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. It is a small thing that you have brought... Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey? To kill us in the wilderness? That you must also make yourself a prince over us? And then he goes on, they go on to say in verse 14, Moreover, you have not brought us into a land of flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of the fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. So these men from Reuben, these leaders from Reuben, they were grumbling because they didn't get what they wanted. They were promised a land flowing with milk and honey. But they also forgot that it was their own people who grumbled and as a result of grumbling, feared the people of the land and had to be turned back into the wilderness. The, these, these leaders from Reuben were grumbling because they did not get what they wanted. We were promised a land for our own possession. We didn't get that land. And it's your fault, Moses. So everyone's grumbling. There, there's, there's rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And what, if you read the rest of this passage, God brings judgment to the people of Israel. He causes this great earthquake to swallow up Korah and his entire crew, his entire tribe. Fire comes down and consumes some of the Levites. Now you'd think that was it, right? You'd think that would solve the issue. God had chosen Moses to lead the people. Korah and his crew got swallowed by the earth. The, 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 the false priests were, were consumed by fire. And you think that, that, would, that would stop the grumbling, right? Well, look at verse 41. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. They continued to grumble. They continued to, to criticize and continued to, to bring up these, these, these accusations towards Moses. And notice what they say. They said, you have killed the people of the Lord. These people were grumbling because they thought it was unfair that those people died. They thought it was unjust that those people were consumed by the earth and consumed by the fire of God. Well, what is fair well, actually, what is fair actually happened to them. They rebelled against a holy, holy, holy God. And they got what they deserved. Now, after this grumbling, God sends another plague to the people of Israel. And more people end up dying. And Moses and Aaron have to intercede, with the, intercede for the people who were complaining to them, who were criticizing them. Talk about a rebellious people. See, ultimately, grumbling, these people were grumbling because they couldn't accept their circumstances. 
And what they failed to realize in the midst of all that grumbling is that they weren't grumbling against Moses and Aaron. They were really grumbling against God. Look at verse 11 of that chapter with me, what Moses says. He says, Therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron and you, that you grumble against Moses is saying, Aaron's just a man. He's not the one who led you out of Israel. He's not the one who redirected you back into the wilderness. He's not the one who chose us to be the leaders. It's God. So you're ultimately, you're, 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 you're grumbling against God ultimately. See, that's why grumbling really is an example or demonstration of our lack of faith. Because if we believe that God is sovereign, that he is in control, even down to the minute details of our lives, then we must believe then that our hardships are the trials and circumstances in our lives that, that we suffer through. Even those things have been ordained by God, have been, have been purposed by God. It's part of God's plans for us. So when we grumble and when we criticize and we grow bitter, it's because, really, again, as the Israelites demonstrated, it's because we think that we deserve more, that we think that we deserve better. It's because we're not getting what we want. It's because we take for granted the goodness of God because we think our circumstances are unfair, unjust. Listen, that says more about our faith than our circumstances. It says more about our trust in God than the fairness of our circumstances. This is why we must deal with grumbling in our lives to catch it before it takes deeper root. Because the next thing we see is that we will be rebelling against God. We'll, we'll be criticizing each other. We'll be growing bitter towards one another. Listen, you know, the, the, the church and our community as a whole, in all of its beauty and joys, it's also prime breeding ground for the roots of bitterness to spring up. When you think you can do better, you can, when you think that you can do a better job than someone else. When you think it's unfair that someone is being recognized or has a ministry and you don't. When you feel entitled to getting more, to have a bigger role, a bigger position maybe. When you grow jealous over someone else's ministry, position, or title. When you don't get what you want in church. When, when, when your preference isn't catered to. Bitterness can easily spring up. And the result of that is ultimately division. So while we're ahead, we need to sort of nip grumbling in the bud. And, and how we do that, we go to Paul in the book of Philippians. So turn with me to Philippians once more. There's some context to the letter of Paul to the Philippian church. This is probably the most joyful letter that Paul has written. I mean, there's no other letter that Paul re repeats the word rejoice and joy more than this letter to the Philippian church. And it's interesting that he does that because he's writing this letter in prison. 
So if anyone had a reason to grumble about his circumstances, it was Paul, the man who was chained in a Roman cell. Yet several times he calls believers to rejoice, to rejoice, to have joy. And in our passage, when he's calling, these, when he's calling believers not to grumble, it's sandwiched between two important principles, two important commands that we receive from Paul in this passage. He says, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. And the second principle would be suffering for the gospel. See, when we do these things, or rather have this kind of perspective, this kind of mindset, it will keep us from grumbling. So let's look at these, these points. So let's, talk, let's talk about these remedies from Paul. First and foremost, the first remedy that he gives is to fear God. Fear God. He says in verse 12 of our passage, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but, sh- but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, as we've preached multiple times before from this pulpit, this verse does not mean salvation by works. It can't mean that. It's not consistent with the rest of Scripture. It's not saying that you need to do works to receive salvation. Notice how salvation in this verse is already possessed. It's already obtained. He says, work out your own salvation. Meaning it's something that you already have. In fact, in the original Greek, um, the word work out means to bring to completion, meaning to bring to its full degree. And it's referring to our responsibility in the process of sanctification to submit to the Holy Spirit, to obey the voice of God, to take up our cross daily and follow after Christ. That's what, that's what Paul is getting at when he says, work out your own salvation. And he returns, you know, until, until Christ returns or he takes us home, work it out, submit to Christ sanctifying us. Now, not to mention the following verse right after that when he says, again, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is very clear. Ultimately, the one who is working out our salvation, the one who is causing us to be sanctified, causing us to obey, is God. It's God who is working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, going back to the topic of grumbling, what what curbs our inclinations to grumbling is the fear and trembling part in this command. It is living under a reverential fear and awe towards God that keeps us from grumbling. That was the point of the whole story of Korah's rebellion. You grumble and this could happen to you. Get swallowed swallowed up by the earth or fire consumed. But that was the notion. That was what Jews believe in fact, what we ought to believe as well. It ought to, that the story of Korah ought to stir up a fear of the Lord in us so that we avoid grumbling. It ought to stir up a reverential fear towards the holy, holy, holy God. That story serves to remind believers that God is the one in charge and not us. And when we grumble and when we criticize our circumstances, ultimately, well, we, are, we are doing it against God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10, it says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
The fear of the Lord gets us to respect and honor the things that God brings our way, the status that we have in life, knowing that they have been brought to us by a holy God. Now, a key component to this is, is the trembling part. I love that, of fear and trembling. It is a state of awe. It's, 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 it's one thing to fear God, to have that reverential fear of God, but it's another thing to be in awe of Him. To be in awe, meaning to be captivated, to be enraptured by something. In this case, God's glory, God's beauty, His goodness, His holiness. It is in this tension of being repelled by God's holiness because of our sinfulness, but at the same time being drawn in by His goodness and His glory, His beauty. That's the fine line that believers are to walk in our relationship with God. Before this awesome God that we have, to, to be fearfully humbled and repelled because of our own sin nature, yet be compelled to draw in, to draw near our good and holy God. And it's in that tension where there is no room for grumbling. Like how can you how can, how can you grumble when when you when you respectfully fear God and His holiness to the to the degree that you you know better than to question His will that you know better to question His plans for you at the same time you are drawn near you are drawn closer to God to trust in Him to have faith in Him to abide in His presence there's no room for grumbling there if you want to. Stop grumbling, fear God. Be fearful of what God can do when we grumble. Be fearful of criticizing a holy, holy, holy God. But at the same time, be compelled to put your faith and trust in Him over the circumstances in your life. Secondly, if we want to remedy grumbling in our, in our lives, we must, be, we must live worthy of the gospel. Live worthy of the gospel. Look at verse 14 to 16 with me. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. A better translation of this, of this uh, passage, holding fast to the word of life in the original Greek, is, is to hold forth, as in to show forth the word of life that is in your life, the, the gospel that is in your life. Which makes sense with the call right, right before that, where Paul says that we are to shine our light into a, a world that is crooked, a crooked generation. We are to live in a way that shines the light of the gospel into the world. In the previous chapter, Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are called to live worthy of the gospel that we believe in. So how does a life worthy of the gospel look like? Well, it looks like many things that we see from the scripture, but the primary way that Paul's trying to communicate in our passage is that we endure suffering, that we persevere through hardships for the gospel. It's why Paul says in our passage, verse 16 again, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, 
even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. See, Paul knew what living a life worthy of the gospel looked like, what it meant. It meant enduring hardships. It meant for him enduring the hardships of prison for the gospel, for the saints. That's what the Christian life is all about. Enduring just as our Savior endured to imitate Christ in his suffering, to take up our cross daily to follow after him. It's why Paul even says in Romans, Romans chapter 5, verse 3 to 4, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The call is for us to have a different perspective when it comes to suffering, to hardships in this life. Knowing that suffering is how we are sanctified, we are refined to be more like Christ. Knowing that our lives are being shaped to be worthy examples of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the sooner we wrap our minds around this truth and accept this reality of suffering in the Christian life, the sooner we find joy in this reality. The sooner grumbling ceases. Because how can we grumble then in our difficult circumstances when we don't get what we want, when we don't have the title that we think we deserve, when we know that our sufferings is, is, is not only producing in us endurance, but character and hope, and it's refining us to be more like Christ, how can we grumble against that? How can we grumble against that great joy and glory? When we know that our, 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 our difficulties in, and hardships in this life is being used to propagate the gospel, not to mention to edify our brothers and sisters in the church, to build them up. It's why Paul again says in verse 17, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. He's saying even these circumstances of being in prison, even if I'm being poured out, even if I'm suffering just so that, so that your faith would be built up, I am glad and rejoice with you all. This is... This is the verse that kept, me, that kept me going, that kept ringing in my mind when I was getting into all those flight delays in the airport and having to go through all that just so that we can build up our brother William. And this verse is not just for ministers of the gospel, but for all believers. Notice the verse right after that in verse 18. It says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. After stating that, he, that Paul rejoices in suffering, he invites believers to rejoice with him. And the only way to do that is to endure suffering as well. It's by believing in faith that hardships, the hardships that we endure, will be used to build up, to edify others. It will be used as a story to... to, to to bolster the faith of our brothers and sisters that we love. That's what brings joy to Paul. That's what ought to bring joy to us and curb our grumbling, even in the most difficult circumstances. That it's knowing, that, again, that our suffering is not meaningless, that our suffering is not in vain, that there is a point, a purpose to the hardships that we are experiencing. 
as we talked about, part of grumbling, why we grumble is when we don't know why we're going through difficulty. And we don't understand why we're going through certain circumstances in our lives. And when we think that what we're going through, the hardships that we're going through is meaningless, purposeless. Listen, your trials are never meaningless. It's used to edify you, to build you up, to be more like Christ. But also that story that God is, 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 is writing in your life is going to be used to edify others. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, the great axiom of our faith. We know, that our, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This is a sure truth of our faith, a pillar of truth in our faith. Your circumstances in life whatever seasons of hardships that you are experiencing, whatever social status you are in, whatever position at work you have, whatever ministry you have, whatever calling you have, whether good or bad, valleys or mountaintops, they are never without purpose. And in the hands of a sovereign and good God, all things work out for the good of those who love him. So why grumble? We are to live worthy of the gospel, taking up our cross daily, ready to suffer for the gospel, ready to suffer for Christ, knowing that our suffering will be used for his glory and our good and the good of others. Lastly, last remedy we see to grumbling that we see in our passage, something more practical Paul gives us here. Number three, celebrate the good. Celebrate the good. Towards the end of this prison letter that Paul sends out to the church of Philippi, he he writes in chapter 4 of Philippians, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Again, if, if anyone had the right to grumble, to disparage about his circumstances, to ask why things are happening to him, it's Paul. It's Paul in prison. But here's why he's, he's not grumbling, why he's rejoicing why this letter to the Philippian church is full of hope and joy, what helped him endure is that he kept his mind on what's true, what's honorable, what's just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, the praiseworthy things as he lists out in chapter 4 of his letter. As we see from Paul all throughout this letter, he celebrates the good. He celebrates the good things, even from the very beginning of his letter, right as he addresses the Philippian church, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Even when he discusses how he has these opponents outside of, or outside of the church trying to discredit him while he's in prison, Paul rejoices 
Why? Because he says only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He's thinking, he's, he's meditating upon the good things. He's celebrating the things to be joyful about. Paul focused on what was true and celebrated the good. And brothers and sisters, we need to do the same. There's no doubt there, that, that there are many things in our lives that we find frustrating and want to fix. Many things in our lives that we need to endure or, or things that we want to have but don't have. But understand, we can, we, as, we as believers have the privilege of celebrating and rejoicing in the good of God. Having been regenerated by the Spirit, given hearts of flesh, replacing our hearts of stone, we have the opportunity and privilege to see the things of God as good. And this isn't some sort of positive thinking, some motivational speaking thing that the world talks about. This is a theological position that if we believe in our total depravity that we can't long after and desire after the good things of God, that we see in, in, in sin that good, that good things are evil and that evil things are good according to Scripture, then it is a privilege and an honor to have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit so that we can now see the things that God is doing in our lives as good things. We have infinitely more things in this life to be rejoicing about, to be joyful about, than the rest of the world. Because we can rejoice and be thankful for what is actually good, what is actually true, what is actually praiseworthy. Only believers can see and know what is truly good from God and rejoice about it. Only those who have truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that what he has given to us is beneficial. The world hopes in such finite things. They celebrate sin. They are, they are proud about, about the flesh, things that the Bible recognizes as evil. They have deemed things that are good in their own eyes. And yet they cannot see the things of God as truly good. But as believers, we have that great privilege. We have that honor to rejoice and to celebrate the good things of God. So we must celebrate them. For those who have been saved by grace, those who have truly experienced the mercies of God, Again, we have infinitely more reasons to not grumble, to not be like the world, but instead praise and worship God. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.